We all got 2020'd. But I'm not playing the victim card, and I don't want you to either. We're going to finish the year with some practical, actionable episodes to help you get momentum that will take you into a new life now. Don't wait until January. Now is the time to get in the fight. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. You'll spend about a third of your life at work. That's something to the tune of 90,000 hours for the average person, and yet too many of us are passive about what we're doing in that time period, what we're doing during 9 to 5 or 8 to 6 or 7 to 6, whatever your, whatever your work hours are. Well, what do you do if you hate your job? How, how do you ask for a raise? How do you bounce back from a rejected promotion? What if you want to change industries? Is it time to pull the trigger on that small business idea? How, how do you recover from a bad first impression with your boss? Well, today we're talking all things work and that one third or more of your life and all things business with my friend and accomplished business leader, Scott Weiss. Scott was a brand manager of Procter & Gamble. He's been a managing director, general manager, and vice president for companies like Bristol Myers, Squibb Pharmaceuticals, and the Clorox Company. 2011, he became CEO for Evenflow, a world leader in infant and juvenile products. Juvenile products directed to people like me. And for six years, he's been the CEO and now chairman of Ocean Programs, one of the nation's foremost faith-based business accelerators. He's an incredibly accomplished, talented man. He's also a good personal friend of mine. He's going to push us past working for the weekend. Welcome to the Aggressive Life, Scott Weiss. So happy to be here, buddy. Happy to have you here, for sure. Is there anything that you want to amend about that glowing introduction that I gave you. Well, I'm blushing. Other than that, I'm, I'm good, but I'm incredibly embarrassed you said all that. Uh, uh, well, you've, uh, you've been at the mill. You've been hitting the same hammer, same nail for a long, long, long time. Actually, right now, you're, you're in a phase of life where people who have your background and have your balance sheet would be kind of hanging out in Florida, having the mosquitoes suck the blood out of their geriatric skin. And yet you're here in a studio and you're still dealing with business stuff. Why are you still in the pocket? Well, first, I love it. I just love the marketplace and the dynamics it unleashes, the creativity it draws out. Um, you know, the an athlete has a career of, a professional athlete has a career of, what, three to four years if they're lucky. The superstar is longer. But a business career can easily span 40 years. Mine has. And so for 40 years, you get to learn and grow and interact. Um, and then second, I, I really believe God's called me into this place at this time. I think he's redeemed a lot of my life with the work at Ocean. And, and when you get up every morning and you feel like you're doing what God tells you to do, it's hard not to be totally energized, right? I'm yeah. just pumped about it. Right. Well, t what, what, tell us what you do right now. So Ocean Programs is a fantastic uh, center here in Cincinnati, Ohio, that offers digital training for anybody who wants to start a business. We have two big training programs. One's for the mom and pops. You want to start a small business and you've never taken that leap, or you took the leap and you're totally terrified. We have a program called GET, Genesis Entrepreneurship Training. It's an eight-week program, lots of mentoring, lots of activity. Half the content's commercial, half the content's biblical leadership lessons. And the other thing is the high-tech accelerator. We'll bring in 10 companies. This year, we'll probably bring in 12 to 20. And those companies are all high-tech, venture-backable, and they spend three to four months with us, combination digital and live. Then they have their big demo day and start raising money. We've launched over 200 businesses over the last five years. And with our digital programs now, we expect to be able to serve many, many more people beyond Cincinnati. That is that's impressive. Thanks. You know, when it comes to business, Scott, I find that we we tend to be in one of two extremes. We love work, we love business, can't get enough of it, or we can't stand it. We're just working for the weekend. When do I get the clonk out? I'm totally unmotivated by work. And I find that I'm I'm becoming like one of these moderate guys. Like I've bounced all around that thing. And I just find myself being much more in the middle these days where it's easier for me to clock out. It's easier for me to take time off. 
I don't, I don't wear my work hours on my sleeve like I used to a decade or so ago. Do you think that comes with, with age or does that come with wisdom or what do you think there? I think there's a big divide based on your gender. So I think men particularly are driven to have impact, to have an outcome, to prove themselves, to measure themselves against yardsticks. And I think that begins to mature and change as you get into your 50s. And you begin to go for a different type of impact, kind of leaving legacy fingerprints places. And, of course, that's for people who have the opportunity to make enough money to do that. Uh, I think women are wired very differently. My experience in hiring, training, supporting lots of women and now training lots of female entrepreneurs is they come into it more balanced, seeking both legacy and yardstick impact. And that's probably totally sexist, but that's kind of what I observe. Oh, we never have any sexism here. We never fall into stereotypes at all. Never. We're we're very, very, yeah, yeah, it, it does sound sexist. But I think there's truth there. I think, the, I think the, the women I know are much more relationally aware, relationally intelligent than the men I know. And I just put myself in that. I've uh, been very relationally and emotionally unaware when I was younger, it was all about the goal, all about the accomplishment, all about the numbers, all about the feeling of satisfaction that something is growing, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the older I've gotten, the more I've recognized I wasted a lot of time trying to prop up a number that wasn't that important. And I could have actually, in some situations, gotten the same number with a lot less time. That's right. And I'm just much more relationally in tune and emotionally engaged with, with folks around me. And I want more of that beyond just the numbers in the chart going up and to the right. The other big difference is generational. So the millennial generation and younger, the millennial generation and younger, they watch their families go through incredible hardship with the 2008 debacle. And since then, it ain't been easy. And so when they approach work, they very much are missional in their orientation. Now, 2008, you're talking about the Great Recession? Correct. Okay. The Great Recession had a profound impact on them. So they had watched their parents pursue achieve, and then get wiped out. They'd watched businesses get wiped out. They watched institutions get wiped out. Lost a lot of faith in the American dream as it was projected to my generation, the baby boom generation. They started to say, I want more in life. I want to start this business, or I want to succeed at this company, but I want more in life, very missional. And they, they filter and think of life choices and career choices through that lens. And we see a huge difference then versus older generations, which just march down the path of achieve, 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 achieve. And when I finally can catch my breath, I'll open myself up to caring and giving back. The millennials very much from the beginning are saying, my life has to have a missional focus. So there's a gender difference in that evolution and growth, and there's a huge generational difference. Interesting. Yeah, there's a... Uh... It's a different deal the younger you are. You've got different goals and all that stuff. At least that, that's what I'm seeing. Yes. And I f I'm finding, though, that that's the problem with so many of us, Scott. We're either too driven or we're not driven enough. Is there is there a, a, a healthy balance? Is there a healthy medium? Or are we always going to feel guilty that we're working too hard and always going to feel like a loser that we're not working hard enough? Or am I the only one who feels this way? Because I do all the time. I'm always second-guessing how I've ordered my days and my months, and I constantly feel like I'm getting it wrong. Am, am I normal there or not? Totally, totally. So the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Yes, it's totally normal, right? The, the people I feel sorriest for, because I was one of them, right, are the people who go off the deep end. They lose, they tie their identity totally to their achievements, particularly common in entrepreneurs. My, my life, who I am, is determined on whether or not my business succeeds, whether I get funded, whether I get the next round, whether I close that small loan. So it's all about their business. And as they sink into that, they give up friends, family, faith, and fitness. They give up their identity. And in that isolation, they, in essence, are giving up their soul. So if you go to complete one extreme of achievement, man, you're lost. By contrast, if you never care, you never engage, like work just doesn't mean anything to you, you have no skin in the game, then there's no return on the 2,000 hours a year you're going to put into that yes. job, right? Yeah. You're, just, you're, you're just punching a ticket and going home. So the happy medium is to tie your identity to Christ, to tie your identity to something much bigger and profound than yourself and what you're trying to get done. And then, as Christ has always told us, 
he leaves us with a hard road. We have to balance that tension. Half the time you get it right, half the time you get it wrong, but over the arc of your life, you're up and to the right. You start to get better at the balance, the relational management, the spiritual management, the financial management. It all starts to come together. Okay, I want to read for you a stat that I had recently, and I just want to hear you react to it. It's this, quote, Couples where one partner spends 10-plus hours more than usual at work has divorce at twice the national average. Twice. Why do you think that is? Because you've, you've married your job. So the stat is 10-plus hours more than the average at that place of employment. So let's go through a career, right? So if you're a doctor, you ain't punching the clock for 40 hours a week. You're working 80 hours a week. And if you're a superstar doctor, you're working 10 plus more hours, you're 90 hours a week. There is no time, and I'm not picking on doctors, but they work such profound hours. There's no time left. You can't be married in a healthy relationship if there's not time invested. So 10 plus more than the average and excellence in the average is always on the upper end of the scale. You just lose yourself into your work. I think there's a, another example at play here, a, a friend of mine who we probably ought to have in the Aggressive Life podcast sometime. He was a neuroscientist with the National Institute of Health. In his lab, the people who clocked the longest hours under his supervision in his lab had the fewest breakthroughs. Yeah. And he said his opinion was, the reason that was, is because there comes a point in the lab where, where you're no longer effective. You're just clocking the hours. And his word was, you have to shut the circuits down. Your, met, your brain chemistry needs shut down and your, your brain needs to stop boiling all those chemicals to make new neural connections so the creativity and breakthrough can come the next, the next day or whenever it is. I think a lot of us have deluded ourselves in thinking that the most productive person is the longest working person. And that's just not the case. Totally agree. Totally. I just, uh, last weekend, I went down to the Red River Gorge. We hiked in, camped, did some climbing, had a great time. It was three days. And on the drive back, I was alone. I had to get back for a meeting with some out-of-state people. I had the most creative three hours I'd had in weeks because I'd just spent three days doing nothing but climbing, camping, sitting around a fire, shooting the breeze with some guys. I was a completely different person. And it just unleashed waves of creativity. There's a talk, I guess, that's going around at your old alma mater, Procter & Gamble guy that was there telling me about it, how there's a talk someone's giving about how all of the innovative breakthroughs, not all, but how many of the innovative breakthroughs at Proctor happened with the, when an R&D department individual was on vacation. Hmm. That it was the vacation time that helped them see something in a completely different way. I think that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I think probably the other truism is most of the breakthroughs at any company, certainly P&G and great places I worked like Clorox, come when someone has made a mistake but they're mentally fresh enough to see the opportunities on the other side. So what was a mistake, a failure of an experiment, reveals a molecule that can do seven things we want to get done. Mm. I was designing it to do the eighth thing, but I just discovered a molecule that can do seven. But you can't see that if you're exhausted and you're only focused on the outcome of, I wanted it to do the eighth thing. You don't see that it does seven other new things. So a lot of discoveries in my career in consumer goods has always been when somebody failed but could see that failure with fresh creative eyes and it unleashed unlimited potential. You and I are a, a place in our life where we can talk how to set healthy boundaries. We can talk about taking time off from work. We can talk about you know having a sane life because we have choices that the average 25 or 30-year-old doesn't have. We have people who work for us. We're sort of the top of our organization. We've learned some wisdom over the years. We've, we've earned our stripes. There's just a lot of, we don't have maybe kids, little kids at home running around. We, we, you and I have a, a level of discretion that the 30-year-old doesn't have. I can hear the 30-year-old's eyes rolling right now, like, oh my gosh, it sounds so good for you, you gray-haired long tooths, talking about you know, not working 60 hours and not this. But meanwhile, here in the real world, here in the real world, people like me are trying to not just make my mark on the world, but be an employee that stands out for their boss and is offering value. Empathize with them. What, what, what do you say to folks like that that doesn't have the... Uh, the, the choices at their disposal that you and I have, because you and I could choose this today to 
this week to work 70 hours, we could choose to work seven hours and no one's going to fire us. So let's come at that first from the impact at work to impress your boss. So, you know, have a, have a good relationship there. I was a boss of lots of people, thousands. And you know what always amazed me? Very few of them ever asked me what would impress me. They just put their head down and stick their bum up and work really, really hard on what they think matters. Stick their bum up? Yeah, I'm How from you Australia. You know, stick, stick your butt up in the air. Just head down, butt up, and go. So, you know, people would never ask. And they would uh, work really, really, really hard. And they work really, really hard on things that really don't matter. But if you have a boss worth a darn, and not all of them are, and at times I have not been, but if you're worth a darn, you'll tell people what matters. Things like character, balance, you know, independence, taking action, having the courage to take the action rather than ask me to show me you are taking action. Yeah. To be independent, to know when you've reached the limit of your authority. I had a great boss once. I used to do things, and every now and then I'd say, yeah, Bob, can I do this? He'd stop and look at me and say, are you, you going to destroy the company? I said, no. He says, then why are you asking me? Just do it. Take initiative, have the courage to do it, and stand with the results. So first, understand what they want. Now, once you understand what they want, second phase of that process is, are you willing to give it? What's the price tag of achieving that? And that's where the tension comes in. You also want a healthy relationship with your wife. You want to be with your kids. That's tension. There's no way out of this. That's the prisoner's dilemma. So you have to choose and balance. And there's going to be days, weeks, when you don't impress your boss. But over the long arc, if you consistently deliver what I want and do it in the way, and I see you taking care of your wife or of your husband, and I see you taking care of your kids, I'm like, that's a keeper. That's a leader that we need here because they can pull it off. Well, it's not even if your boss could see you taking care of your wife and your kids. If you're not taking care of your wife and your kids, your wheels will come off. And during that period of time, you will be giving subpar performance. You cannot give peak performance when you're going through a divorce. Absolutely. You cannot give peak performance when, you're, when your kid is off the rails because you haven't given them attention to really build them up. You got, you got to pay the piper at some point. Absolutely. And, and no matter how much you think you're keeping your personal life secret, you're not. Mm -hmm. The emotions always leak out. The negative or positive energy leaks out. The security and love you feel leaks out or it doesn't. So it, it's all visible. It just takes a while for the other person to sort out what's going on. So we're going to get into successes and how to, how to be successful in business in, a, in, in just a bit. Some one-offs I want you to speak to. But I want to speak as well to the entrepreneur that's out here right now. It's, it's one thing to be able to put some boundaries around you when there's a company that's paying you to go on vacation however many weeks a year and there's people who are in the office to backstop you, right? Uh, it's one thing to be able to slow down when there's a whole infrastructure around you that's going to pick up the slack when it needs it. But when you're an entrepreneur, like you, you, don't, you don't have those infrastructures at all. You don't have much that's backstopping you. You really are on your own, feel a different degree of stress and pressure on you. How does that woman, how does that guy live in this world? What a great question. <clears throat> the, the core answer is the same. What do you tie your identity to? Where are you anchored? Um, so if you're anchored in your business, your business will control your life. If you're anchored in your family, you'll resent putting the hours into your business. If you're anchored in your belief in Christ, you're given a toolkit that will allow you to manage that tension as successfully as you can. The biggest reason entrepreneurs fail, number one and number two, and they're very close, number one is they don't know what they're doing. They lack the commercial skills. They get into a business because they're passionate about the solution. I was on a Zoom call today with uh, two young guys in town who are opening a new restaurant, and they were at the property. They're building it out. I was watching all the construction. They're holding the phone up. Uh, Mastroots Mofongo, a, a Puerto Rican restaurant which is going to open up on the north side shortly. And they're an ocean graduate in that Genesis program. And they're passionate and they've managed it and they've done all this. And I was just blown away with how much progress they've made because their identity is clearly in their faith. They balance the tension with their families in this demanding startup and they're solving a real simple problem. 
there is no Puerto Rican food in Cincinnati. It's really good food. So they're coming into a niche that's not occupied, and they'll surround that with the culture of Puerto Rico. It's going to be so cool. So tie your identity to something bigger than yourself. Solve a real simple problem and solve it as simply as you can. That's the way to keep the stress load as low as possible. Don't get in front of your skis. Meet lots of entrepreneurs who come in and all they want to talk about is raising money. My first question is, why do you need to raise money? Lots of these businesses can generate sufficient cash flow to run themselves. Generating capital or taking on loans just means you've got another helper, a boss. The guy who gives you the money or the gal who gives you the money is going to tell you what to do. If you don't need that, don't do it. And if you do need money, take as little as possible for as long as you have to so you retain control. So it's identity, it's don't get in front of your skis, and keep it simple. Solve a problem, be able to articulate it, solve it simply. So it's, it sounds simple. It's always harder to do it than it is to talk about it. And I think that's why being a person of faith actually helps in these situations. You've got a big diatribe you go on to. Why is it helpful? Why are people of faith actually at a benefit when it comes to being an entrepreneur? If your faith is mature, you by definition are doing some things that are critical to being an entrepreneur. You believe in that which you cannot see. When you and I are going to start that business, we have an idea. There is no thing. So we believe in something we cannot see. Second, if you're a Christ follower, you're connecting with other people. We do this together. So you're relational, and those relational skills are critical, particularly if you're a solo entrepreneur. Who you know and how well you network is critical to getting the support you need. You know, and third, successful Christians or mature Christians are serving a cause bigger than themselves. They're service-oriented. They are servant leaders. Let me have this impact because it was role-modeled for me. Successful entrepreneurs are service-oriented. I am here to solve your problem. I expect to be compensated it, but at my heart, I want to solve your problem and make your life better. I think being a mature Christian prepares you for three key elements of what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. Believe in the unseen, relate well with other people, and serve people by solving their problems. Yeah, that's great. Well, even just the definition of faith, faith is not believing something stupid that you know can't be true. Faith is not, I'm just by faith going to believe that Adam and Eve rode on Triceratops. No, Adam and Eve did not ride on Triceratops. There wasn't wasn't any dinosaurs there with Adam and Eve. Sorry to blow your, but you you may have faith that that's the way it was, but that's really not the way it was. I'm not, faith is not believing something stupid that people know is not true. Faith is having a foundation and something that you've experienced, something that you trust in, something that's gone before you, and millions of people have built their lives on as well, that gives you an added solidity to your life, that gives you an X factor, that gives you a grid to actually filter through information. You're right. When you come to a level of spiritual maturity, when you're grounded in faith in something that has those characteristics, there's absolutely a power to your life and actually absolutely an ability to endure through something that isn't succeeding just yet because you believe and you can see how it can succeed. And if I can go on, it's so critical. We don't need any more cultures that look like Uber. We really don't. We need people who bring into their business that they're starting a mature understanding of the principles of having a balanced life, a focused life, a life based on principles bigger than themselves and to walk that out in how they treat people and the people they hire. We need more people who are mature, focused, successful, competitive, but have at their core a mature understanding of what it means to have a rich and full life. And speed of the leader, speed of the team, and that normally is meant to understand, well, if you've got a workaholic culture, it comes from the leader. If if you have a culture that is very creative, it comes from the leader. But for what we're saying for a portion of this, if you want a healthy culture, you got to have a healthy leader. That's right. I, you can't control Procter & Gamble, but you can control yourself. You can. Take control of yourself 
That's what the aggressive life is about. Some of us, I can hear some of us right now, I can hear some of us going, oh, well, it's easy for you to say you're 50. It's not the same when you're 30. Oh, well, it's easy for you to say because you got a big organization around you because, you know, I don't have a good, well, it's easy to you, you to say because there's a, well, it's, yeah, hey, 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 it's called the aggressive life. It's not called the passive life. That's exactly right. When you think that way and you think you're always the exception, you think that your situation can't be any different, you're being passive. You're being a victim. You're going nowhere. You're not honoring your God or going to get even closer to God because that's not how he operates. He operates when people who are choosing to do something to do something different, not just believe something different to actually do something different. There's not a person who's in business, not a person who gets a paycheck, who shouldn't be getting some value from this right now. And Scott Weiss, you're doing a, an amazing, amazing job. I wish I, I wish you were my boss. That's what I wish. <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's go back to those folks who um, are younger in their career. Like knowing what you know now, if you went back to restart your business career, what would you do differently? What should somebody do when they're 25 or 35 that you may or may not have done when you were 25 or 35? Let me start by one thing I did that I encourage everyone to do. Then I'll jump to what I did not do and wish I had. Uh, I worked in a variety of places, but, but when I would come to a company, I, I wouldn't look at my boss and say, what, what does he or she do? I would look at their boss. I would say, what are the behaviors and skills that my boss is preparing to take on? So I had a mental image of what was ahead of me further up the mountain than just one step. It's like when we were in Israel together, right? And we climbed Masada, and you had the choice to take the trolley or tram up, or you could climb up the mountain. I climbed up the mountain. I ended up being alone. But I was always looking at the top. I knew where I was going. It's a long, hot walk but I knew where I was going. So I always look further ahead than my boss. I didn't ignore my boss, but I role modeled on one level above that. Mm. One thing I did not do well until much later in my career is I did not network well. Mm. I did not network well. Mm. And that's a critical skill. It's critical to have authentic relationships and to sustain them throughout your life. They'll have their natural rhythm, um, in the last half of my active career, I began networking very well. And when we arrived in Cincinnati, I feel like I finally bloomed. I have so many deep relationships here. And I think back to my first round in Cincinnati back in the, the uh, mid-80s, I have maybe three friends left from that era. So I'd, I'd invest a lot in networking, authentic, real networking. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I hear people say frequently, oh, well, it's just so political. Where I am, it's so political. And when you dig under that, what's often happening that they don't have the words for it is this place runs on relationships, and I don't really feel like putting in the time to build a relational bank of trust with people. It's like the best idea should win. The hardest workers should win. No, it doesn't work that way. Best ideas and hardest workers mean something, but we are relational beings and we just receive people who are more relatable than others, right. you know? When I was, uh, I was very blessed in my career and for a long period of time, Charlotte and I and the kids got to live in Hong Kong and I was running a huge startup for uh, the Clorox company and the products that we sold in Asia had no relationship to what you know the Clorox company to sell in the United States. Different consumers, different habits, different households, everything. So I would come back to the U.S. frequently, and every time I would come back, I would go out to the R&D Center, which was 25 miles from the headquarters in Pleasanton, California. And I would just get a rent-a-desk. I didn't have an office. I'd just get a desk in an open space, and I would just work there because I wanted to meet scientists because I needed them to think about the formulas that the United States had decades ago that could be adapted for what we were trying to do in Asia. And it was through the relationships I formed just because I showed up. None of them worked for me. I wasn't their boss, but they got to know me. They got to know what our vision was. And suddenly the product pipeline just filled up because people wanted to help. So that was authentic, real. I'd go outside and walk around with them. I'd listen to stories about their kids. And then I'd tell them what we're trying to do in Asia and boom. In about a year, we had a really interesting product pipeline. 
just took off. Because of relationships. relationships. Yeah. And none of them got the big reward from corporate. I didn't get the big reward from corporate, but the business vision was able to come together. And we had a lot of fun. That's great. All right. So give us some, give us some one-offs here on some coaching for us. How about when I ask for a raise, how do I do that? Or should I ask for a raise? You should know if you should ask for a raise. Wanting a raise and deserving a raise, two different things. So don't ask for a raise if you don't deserve a raise, right? And if you don't know if you deserve a raise, then you got to back the train up even further. Why are you working so hard in this organization or for this person and you don't understand what success looks like? So if I'm working for you, Brian, I know what you want or I know what Crossroads wants and I'm consistently delivering it and I've done that over a sustained period of time, I should ask for a raise, mm-hmm. right? But if I don't even know what success is, I have no business asking for a raise. So first, understand if you deserve one. Second, ask, ask, ask. So many people get so angry, so they carry such bitterness because they haven't received a raise, but they haven't asked. And I managed a lot of people. Very few people walked into my office and said, Scott, I've been working for you for about a year. I've delivered on all my objectives. The company's doing well. I benchmarked my salary outside, and I think based on my results and my potential, it's time for us to look hard at my salary. And I, I think it's time for us to give it a little bump. Very few people ever asked me that. And when they did, I'd love it. If I agreed with them, I'd say, Brian, great question. Let's talk about that. Or if I didn't agree with them, I'd say, Brian, great question. Let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, very few people ask. They just expect, and then they get angry when it doesn't come. So know if you deserve it, and B, go ask. And C, what is your plan B? The company, your employer, the entrepreneur has the right to say no. Predetermine if the answer is no, is that an opportunity for you to say, well, tell me more. What could I do better? Where are we at? Is the company okay? Are you ready to have a mature discussion about why you didn't get it? Or is that the ripcord and you're going to walk out the door? So have the plan before you ask if the answer's no. That's good. That's solid. Yeah, when someone comes to me and asks for a raise, I mean, it's a, that's a high-stakes thing right there. Uh, that person is taken very, very seriously. You never dismiss it, taken very, very seriously. And it always leads to clarity. <laughs> Clarity for me, clarity for them. Sometimes it's clarity of, you've just been a pain in the rear for a while here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just another, another example of that. So I think your idea of the, and I say sometimes, the vast minority of cases is this is a person who's a squeaky wheel and who's, who's doing that. that. That generally is not the case because for someone to come and talk to you, as I just reason it out in my mind right now, shows that they've got, relational abilities that they're actually going to talk to somebody who's their boss and people have relational abilities. Like we already talked about generally produce really, really good results. Yeah. It's a big deal. All right. How about, uh, how about not just a raise promotion? Should you ask for promotion or will you naturally get one if you're the most qualified person? Every position you go into, uh, whether it's working for a small company and it's an entrepreneur or a large organization of any type, As you enter each role, you should ask, what's it take to succeed? What's it take to succeed? And if I succeed, what's the outcome? There are career paths where there is no promotion. There are individual contributors. There may be future compensation or different rewards. Um, But if it's managing other people and you want to move up, know when you start what success looks like. And and, uh, set your expectations accordingly and then hold your employer accountable to the expectations they helped you set, right? I provided feedback, or I try to provide feedback to work for me daily. Good job, great job. Hey, why'd you do that? That doesn't feel so good. Or I feel like we're letting each other down here. But I also provided formal feedback twice a year. And one of the discussions I would always have with people is their future career. And I always began the discussion with, Brian, what do you want? Where are you in life right now? What are you looking for? And it's amazing. Not amazing. It's not amazing. It's self-evident. People will raise their hand and say, I need to slow down. I got some stuff at home I'm dealing with. I, I just, I need to pause. I need to continue delivering at the level I'm at. But right now, I'm not seeking the next level up because I got my hands full. 
And I know when when the babies came along and we adopted the boys and all that, my hands were full, right? Really full. And I still wanted to succeed at work, but you just couldn't maintain the pace. So I'd always have that discussion. If your boss isn't doing that, you should do that. You should walk in and say, what's it take to succeed here? And what does it take to get ahead? Yeah. Having an interracial marriage in the 70s. Very difficult. That was supposed to be humorous. <laughs> Scott has is an interracial marriage. Was married in the 70s. <laughs> no, seriously, Mike. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're an interracial marriage. You've got... Uh, Biracial kids, you've adopted kids that aren't your aren't your skin tone. You're you're sort of a renaissance man ahead of modern society, which we're doing much, much better in those things now than we were in the 70s and 80s. What kind of challenges did that bring for you? Well, first off, I married this incredible person who lifts my game every day, without a doubt. Charlotte is far better than I am. Um, and uh, just opened up to me a window of growth and love that I would never have experienced if I had never met her. So I'm so passionately in love with my wife. Um, the challenges in the 70s, uh, they ranged from physical safety, physical confrontations with people who didn't agree with what we were doing, physical confrontations with people here in Ohio that didn't agree with what we were doing, wow. um, all kinds of psychological safety issues. Family disowned us. Not true. My family disowned us. Her family embraced us. And that eventually came around. Scott is the white one, if you're not sure. Keep going. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, marriage is hard. It's hard to join somebody in holy matrimony, make a commitment for life, and work through all that. It's just hard. And then if you add race in the 70s, um, and there's no role models— there's nobody to turn to, and you're sorting all this out. It, like I would, like any young husband, there are things I think all young husbands do that are just, you know, rude, really rude. And then Charlotte's had to filter, are you just a guy? Because she grew up with two sisters, and I grew up with four brothers. I had no experience living with a girl, right, outside of my mom. It was a woman, and she had no experience living with a guy outside of her dad. So the first week we were married— we moved to Colorado, where we both worked for Colorado State University. And uh, she made me a pie. And there was one piece of cherry pie left. And we both came home to eat during the day because we both worked on campus. I came home and ate it. And that night I came home and my wife is in this tiny little apartment behind this little quartered wall, which is the kitchenette, crying. Shall mm. I never cry? She's crying. And I know I've done something wrong, but I don't know what. And Charlotte says, you ate the pie. And I'm like, I'm looking around, like I'm looking at you now, like, what's the big deal? And she goes, you have to ask. It's a sign of respect. Mm. You have to ask everyone in your family if they want a piece of pie. Well, A, that's a gender issue because girls, she was raised that way as a girl. And B, it's a huge racial issue, right? Like, we're equal. You don't get it naturally. And so she said, why did you eat oh, the pie? Oh, issue. So, you, so she was reading from you. You were assuming thinking, I'm white. I'm I, more... I was thinking it was a racial issue. I'm okay. filtering out. Okay, I got, you were raised that way. You're female, I'm not. And I'm thinking, do you think this is me thinking I'm superior to okay, you? I got it. That I just get the first fruit. And so she gets done and she says, why did you eat the first fruit pie? And I said, honey, I grew up with four brothers. If it wasn't moving, we ate it. And if you didn't eat it first, you starved. There was never enough food with five. And we were like, boom, 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 boom. We were all the same age. So I was navigating that. I had to slow down and make sure I wasn't bringing my own racial uh, upbringing into our relationship. And when I was, to recognize I was and grow from it. Well, I think what's important for us in, in this conversation is that I'm trying to get sideways into a side street into the social situation in our country, though I'm happy to do that. It's more an example of all of us have things in our life that are complicated that could keep us from getting ahead in business. All of us. I mean, the weight and the complexity of that problem you had, or it wasn't a problem, but you know, that the complexity around that whole thing could have been stifling, but still you figured out a way to to give the attention you needed to give to your family, give the attention you needed to give to your business career, and um, and you and the world are, are the better for it right now. Oh, thanks. So what if it's my first big boy job? 
What, what should I be doing? Big boy or big girl job? What do I do? Understand the job you got. <laughs> I did town halls when I was a CEO and a president and a managing director. And you could separate people real quickly. There's a minority of people who ask the question to make themselves look smart. Mm. And there's the majority of people who ask really good questions. In that first group, people come into a job, it's their first big boy or big girl job, and, and they do what they think they should do. They don't ask, they don't have clarity, they don't know what the organization wants, they just start doing, and they want to be rewarded for activity. Slow down. What's it take to succeed here? What do you want done? Make mm -hmm. it really, really clear, mm -hmm. and then go do that Yes. to the best of your ability. Yes. That's good. I hate my job. What do I do? Or not do? Why do you, it always begins with, why do you hate it? Why do you hate it? Most people leave employment because they hate their boss. Those are different things. Most people who leave a company go and do the exact same work for a different company. And they do it for somebody who they think they'll like better. Right? So you got to get to, why do you hate it? If it's the boss... You may not be able to change that situation. Maybe it is time to leave, or maybe it's time to have a pretty honest discussion with your boss. Maybe what you hate about your boss is they hold you accountable to commitments you made, and you don't like being held accountable to commitments you made. Um, if you really hate the work, why are you doing it? Well, let's get the best and worst for you. So give us the worst vignette from your work career and the best vignette from your work career. Or at least the best and worst that you can think of. Oh, that's the, the worst is there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not true. Give us one. Well, I was the employee, and I was working for a guy named Pete. Um, and we were in this startup phase uh, in Hong Kong. And, and uh, if you've never been to Asia, uh, I had a business that wrapped from Japan to Moscow to Sydney. Flying from Hong Kong to San Francisco, where our headquarters was, is 12 hours. Flying to Sydney is 9. Flying to Japan is 7. Flying to Moscow is 14. I lived on an airplane. I'm starting all these businesses, hiring all these people. I was totally exhausted. Totally exhausted. Uh, and, uh, but it, we had to do that for a certain season. And somebody uh, back at headquarters got promoted ahead of me. Mm. And I called my boss. It's on voicemail, and I left the most immature, angry, screaming, yelling at him. He's a very smart man. He simply forwarded back to me. And so I had to listen to myself. And then, he's, then he called, he left me a voicemail and says, I know you didn't mean that, let's talk tomorrow. It's the worst thing I ever did. I was so embarrassed, oh, you know? Man. I just, t I totally got myself in that broken position and then blamed another guy. Mm because I felt like I wasn't being rewarded. Mm. That's terrible. That's the worst. <laughs> if I could take that minute, moment back and not do that to Pete and his grace not to share it with everybody else and just to realize I was exhausted and to make it go away was so kind. I'm, I'm in pain just now thinking about it and listening oh. to it. I can do the same thing. Oh, it's terrible. Um, the best. Give us some of those a highlight for you. Like this moment, man, that's when business is great. That was moment when work life was amazing. Anytime you launch something new, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're part of a team inside a company or a church and you launch something new, you work so hard to get to that point. You throw it out there and it works. That is the best feeling. You... You'd never know, and then it just takes off. And I've been so fortunate to be parts of things that didn't just work, they exploded in success. Just overnight, took the market, massive market share. That is the best feeling. That's the team winning, that's you winning, that's the vision winning, and that just propels you to try it again. It's, it's very addictive. Launching new things, not all of them succeed. I've had many, many failures, but the ones that do just suck you in and you keep wanting to do it. Scott, are you ready for the lightning round? <laughs> the, here's the lightning round rules. I give you something and you have to answer it in like one or two sentences. Chop, chop, pop, pop. Do you think you can do it? These are very, very light, easy, one-off topics. I doubt it, but I'll try. All right, here we go. Just sim first simple one. Most aggressive move you've ever made as a business leader. 
came into a business as a CEO and instantly broke it in three parts and sold them. Most aggressive move you've made as an employee before you were the boss. Was put in charge of a new product development and took it 180 degrees in the other direction. Business idea you wish you were in on from day one. Spatial, one of the companies that came through the ocean accelerator. I wish I was in on that from day one. Oh, go ahead, Phil, I'll let you go off that. That's an interesting story. Love, love those guys, love their product, love how they've grown and evolved, uh, love what they're doing. It's a high energy group that seems to have a lot of fun and continues to expand every day. And the business is going well right now? Going well. Great. Leaders in business you look up to and why? Right now, the guy I look up to most in business is local. His name's Marcus Grooms. He owns a wood drying business. It's up in Blue Ash. Uh, Marcus has got a great background. It's a corporate background. Unfortunately, he's, he suffered uh, a lot. Uh, he suffered a bankruptcy. Uh, his wife passed away. He's remarried. And he launched this business eight years ago. He told me all about it before he pulled the trigger. Just watching him operate the men he brings in, the works for him, the quality of work he does, the joy he brings to it. To me, he's the personification of a seasoned, successful, highly impactful entrepreneur. I just love being around him. I go see him every other week for coffee just to be around him. Wood drying business. What, what, what exactly is that? I mean, so I, you I take got, logs. I got, you take got logs. Him. And I you got turn him. I got him right now. Woods. And I and I take it to him, and he he'll mill it and dry it. He'll he'll he will dry it and mill it. It's the reverse order. Oh, really? He'll do either. Depends what you want to do with it. He specializes in live edge. He went out and found a, uh, most wood drying in the United States is you extract uh, humidity. And then he found a pneumatic process from Italy, which reduces wood damage by some massive percent. So he owns the only Italian wood drying machine like in the Midwest, and he's bringing in another one. So he's got huge uh, volume because and, he doesn't damage the wood. And does he do little one-off projects sure. that have three black walnut logs that are 10 feet long and okay. 14 well, inches thick? Just go up to his place. He walks you around, shows you all the wood. You just got to get in the oh, queue. He's a great guy. man. All right. You know, I've often said it's all about me. So here, <laughs> so here in this podcast, it is all about me. I allowed you to break the lightning round rules simply because it was helpful for me. Because what's the most important thing? Me. All right. Let, let's keep going here. Best advice you give to somebody who's just graduated from college? Find your passion and follow it smartly. Am I allowed to disagree with you? Mm -hmm. That's a stupid idea. Tell me why. <laughs> Find your passion. Mm -hmm. Who's passionate about toothpaste? And yet people who've worked in toothpaste their whole lives have had amazing lives. Who's passionate about toilet paper? Mm -hmm. Who's passionate about, I mean, it sounds like you're saying, oh, I'm passionate about mountain boarding. So I just need to go out and, not mountain boarding. So I worked, you know on, what I'm I worked on Tide, Cascade, and Cheer, and I wasn't passionate about any of those products. All right, so define that then. So I was passionate about uh, leading other people. I was passionate about solving real problems. I was passionate about winning in the marketplace. Like I knew my share every day. Got it. I was passionate about throwing myself against the marketplace and having the impact I wanted to with the character intact. That's what I was passionate about. The product's interesting, but I'm never passionate about the product. I'm pa passionate about the process. I'm passionate about business. That's excellent. Great. Reason why small businesses fail. Don't know what they're doing, lack business acumen, get isolated and lonely. Best encouragement you give to somebody who's out of work due to COVID-19 or something else outside their control. I was fired twice. I was fired in 2009. They wanted to sell the company. It's a bad time to get fired, right? Height of a recession, lots of CEOs walking around without jobs. And the advice I'd give myself is make looking for a job as important as, as how you work in one. You, you got to work it every day, man. You got to burn some shoe leather. You got to get on the phone. If you aren't going to seek for you, who's going to? 
get out there and get it done. That's great. Well, Scott, this has been fantastic. Is there anything that we should have talked about that we're not talking about? I, I came in here thinking about the aggressive life and, you know, trying to frame answers for that respect. And I came in here thinking about ocean. If you're an entrepreneur or thinking of launching a business, the right next step is to jump into one of the digital programs we have at Ocean. It will help you frame whether or not it's the right idea and you're the right person. But if both those answers come up yes, you now have the game plan and you can decide when to pull that trigger. So don't sit back and think about doing it. Invest enough to see if you should and if you're the right person. We'd love to meet you. So if someone wants to follow up with you, see what's going on with you, hear more ideas from you, just go ahead and pump yourself here. Any social media channels or any other venues people can plug into? Go to oceanprograms.com. Go to hashtag oceanprograms on Facebook. Just go to oceanprograms. Any message you send to us, if you just put the word Scott in front of it, if you want me, I will get. It will end up in my inbox. Or if you just want information from Ocean, you'll hear from Luke or Michelle or Courtney or one of our great team members. Scott, it's always a pleasure to be with you. I love when I get to hang with you and do my job at the same time. That's good. You're, you're one of my favorite people in the world. And uh, thanks for giving us time and, and helping a lot of folks here today. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it, boys and girls. Another episode of The Aggressive Life. Do not sit and wait around for your finances to get better. Do not sit and wait around for your business career to start growing. Do not sit and wait around until that startup opportunity just magically manifests itself. Do something today with what we just learned. I don't care what business you're in, how old you are, how big, how small, something was given today that if you do it today, tomorrow will be different. Go do that. That's a wrap. Welcome to this episode of The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.